Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning. There probably isn't a family in Ireland that hasn't been touched by cancer. In fact, approximately 25,000 people are diagnosed with invasive cancer here each year. In the past 20 years, almost 31,000 people have taken part in almost 800 cancer clinical trials. I'll be joined by Professor Seamus O'Reilly, Consultant Medical Oncologist and Vice Clinical Lead of Cancer Trials Ireland, to hear how trials work and how to access them. And Sarah McGrath will give her experience of breast cancer and taking part in a clinical trial herself. And why are there some emotions that we fear or label as bad? I'll be looking at anger and rage with counselling psychotherapist Christine O'Reardon. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? I'm good. You might remember a few weeks back I had Fiona Brennan, clinical hypnotherapist and author of the Positive Self Habit book. And she was talking about her Light Up Your World course. Now, she invited me to do the course myself and I'm at the halfway point now. There is an Instagram live between myself and Fiona looking at my experience to date on both of our pages if you're interested. And the course basically has modules of videos with Fiona talking about self-compassion and lots of other topics and insights. And there are meditations that you listen to morning and evening. And there's also practical habits to use in everyday life and some journal prompts at the end of each lesson. And I confessed during the Instagram live that I haven't been doing the journaling. I'm not really mad on the concept of journaling. I'm so used to typing now for a start. I find pen to paper so laborious and tedious and I just avoid it. Now, I am in this wellness game long enough to know that there's a red flag when you're avoiding something, procrastinating, making excuses. I'm just avoiding it. So I promised to catch up and get on with it. So I took a copybook and pen to the beach in France recently and went through every exercise. Now, I had thought that simply thinking about the prompts Fiona suggested would be enough. But actually, writing them down gives a lot more clarity and insight. Now, I won't give away Fiona's course, but there was one exercise which I would actually recommend. And a lot of the course focuses on our thoughts and the power we give them, particularly the negative ones, and that we should actually challenge them rather than just believe them. So, She asked that we write down all negative self-thoughts, the regular ones that show up all the time. I mean, we all have them. I'm not good enough is the main underlier in so many areas. It could be work, family, friendship, body image. And when you write them down one by one and look at them on paper, they seem so ridiculous and almost frivolous. Then you have to challenge them. And in the exercise, you had to look at them and think, well, are they true and write why they weren't? And with each one, I realised what a waste of time and energy they all were. And I was thinking about what would life be like if I constantly repeated the reverse to myself? Now, I do think in Ireland, we think it's a little bit American in inverted commas to look in the mirror and tell ourselves we're awesome. But there has been a great deal of research into not only the effect of negative self-talk on our mood and our stress levels, but also the impact of self-compassion. Even where there are perceived failures, meeting it with compassion and not dwelling on the negative can have such a positive effect on our mindset, our abilities and our relationships. Now, it's easier said than done, and I don't think a few hours of scribbles on the beach has me sorted, but I will truck on with the rest of the course and see how I get on. It's just ongoing, isn't it? You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. 
Now, I wanted to do a series on emotions for a while and I met recently with counselling psychotherapist Christine O'Reardon. And today we are going to look at the topic of anger and rage. Christine, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you for having me. Christine, you and I met at the Health at Every Size uh, Summit recently when we were talking about guilt and shame. And I really realised I think I found my person to go through emotions because what I said in the introduction is a fact. There, there are certain emotions that we're quite fearful of. Absolutely. And, you know, as soon as we have a fear of something, we want to put it away. You know, we want to run from it. We want to hide it. We don't really know how to allow ourselves to have it almost. And then when we do that, we're kind of cutting ourselves off from a very important piece of information that our body or our environment is trying to give us, you know. So it's almost like allowing ourselves to get to know these scary emotions, to take a little bit of the fear out of them. Um, and softening it in that way so that we can actually just get all the information we need and go on in a healthier and more balanced way if we can. And are all emotions valid in the human experience? Absolutely. You know, I suppose all emotions are a natural part of our human experience, like you say. And I suppose it's the level to which we feel a certain emotion. It's the way it might impact us or how it might impact us in a given moment that makes us decide, oh gosh, actually that's good and that's bad. And so as society, you know, in general, we can kind of say, oh yeah, we we recognize what we think are the good ones. So we recognize what we think are the bad ones and we club them together into these two camps. And I suppose, like I said, the fear when we do something like that is that one camp, the good one, you know, we want to hang on to that all of the time. And then the bad camp, we want to push it to the back and nobody wants to go there. And that's just not how life works because the bad guys <laughs> that we see as bad guys, they're still going to come in the same level or the same way that the good emotions are going to be experienced. And so then we don't know how to deal with them because we're like, oh no, I've run away from them for a very, very long time. And then when they come, I don't know what to do, you know? So let's start with the first emotion that I've picked and it's anger and rage. And I think I picked it because when it shows up in my life, it's usually, I suppose, in my family. So, you know, the the place I feel I can 100% be myself. So either a row with, with my husband or, you know, letting a roar at the kids when they're not listening and we're trying to leave the house. And I really beat myself up about it afterwards. And it really feels like the wrong thing to do. So that's why I wanted to have a look at it as an emotion, how it shows up in our body and and, and whether or not there is a a right or a a wrong way for us to, to feel it. So why do we feel anger? What is happening with us at that time? So um, anger is a natural adaptive response to threat in our environment. So, so it does happen for a reason. And if we were to kind of like imagine that there's, there's this little button in our brains and when the little button gets the news, okay, there's some kind of a threat in my environment, the button gets pushed and then the information gets sent out to the rest of the body and the rest of the body jumps to action. You know, as you might expect when there's a threat, um, our blood pressure might rise a little bit. Our temperature might rise, you know, adrenaline might kick in because we're ready to take care of ourselves. We're ready to defend ourselves because there is a threat. But unfortunately, where the, the chain of communication seems to have broken down is that 
maybe we're not assessing the level of threat, you know, that's actually happening in the environment, you know, so we're very, very quick to jump at something um, and think, oh my gosh, we really, really have to swing into action here. And really, maybe it wasn't such a threat. Maybe it was something that was a, mo- a mild annoyance, you know, something that I could have dealt with without getting my 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 backup or without getting my physical senses so ready to take action. Maybe it was something I could talk through, you know. And again, it kind of comes back to that idea that we, like you say, the anger pops up when we feel relaxed, when we're at home and we might be more okay with the people around us. And we think, oh, I might be able to manage it here. And then afterwards, we feel really, really bad. So that the next time, maybe we'll try and avoid it altogether, you know. So we're kind of really getting this imbalanced way of actually managing and meeting the anger. So it leaves us not knowing how to actually deal with it. So the next time we do let out a shout, we don't even know if it was justified because we weren't able to actually assess what was I really angry about in the first place? What was really, really upsetting me in that moment? I suppose that's why you call it losing it because you've you've lost control and you've lost that ability to take a step back for a moment and ask yourself what's going on here for me and and what do I need to to communicate you just as you say just sort of go for it and is it better to express our anger rather than suppress it like I mean absolutely 100% if we and when we can find a healthy and safe way to express the anger we are feeling. That is absolutely the best way forward. Because when we suppress those emotions, it's almost like we're we're telling that little piece of information. Okay, maybe I am really angry, but I'm going to, you know, squish it down into a really small condensed cube and I'm going to chuck it in the back room. And then each time this happens, I'm squishing down a cube of anger and I'm chucking it in the back room. And then suddenly the lock on the door of the back room bursts open and all of these little cubes of anger come bursting out and it becomes something different because like you say that angry feeling is kind of frightening isn't it you know that it's like I'm losing it I'm out of control you know and I don't know what to do with that whereas at each opportunity when I'm angered by something in a way that I can manage you know and if I'm allowing myself to say okay this is an emotion sometimes it might make me feel bad But actually, how do I express that? Am I able to just say to the other person, that has made me really angry? How do I say to myself, that has made me really angry? You know, and once we do that, we're not condensing them down and chucking them in the back room to come out at a later stage. We're actually allowing ourselves to find a way to resolve the emotion in the moment and then move on from it in a healthy and safe way. So how do we work out what our what our triggers are? How do we work out what's a deep rooted issue and what's just I was running late, I was a bit stressed out and, you know, I blew my top. It's not a big deal. How do you assess what's what? Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of one of the ones where uh, I think I, I might have uh, seen on your Instagram recently the the um, information you were getting to journal. <laughs> I might mention it here again. That <laughs> And I know we might be hearing it all the time. Oh, you know, journaling is good, but that's because it's really good, you know. <laughs> but this can it can be a really good way of, you know, just getting to know myself because because like you say Claire like in the moment you know and we're 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 gone we're out of control and we're in that emotion and we can't really feel ourselves we can't really talk to ourselves the logic goes out the window that's not when we're going to get this work done of getting to know ourselves sometimes it's afterwards 
maybe not even directly afterwards, but maybe at night, maybe at the end of the week or the end of the day, whatever way you might find to fit this in. And almost like a little bit of um, just a self-check-in, you know, and kind of check in and say like, okay, what was actually going on for me there? Like, you know, why did I get so angry? You know, what happened in my body? What happened directly beforehand? What happened directly afterwards? And, you know, there's layers and levels to which we can kind of step ourselves into this. You know, sometimes it can be too much to jump straight into that, you know, oh God, what's this all about? Like, and how heavy was I feeling and all of that kind of stuff. Sometimes to start ourselves off, we could even just use something as simple as, um, like an emoji, you know, in our minds, you know, kind of think of, okay, what was going on for me there? We might think of that really angry, over the top red emoji with the steam coming out the ears or whatever that gentle way into it for us might be. But it's like tracking what's going on for me. What happened before the event? What happened in the middle? And what happened afterwards? You know, what way did it leave me feeling? And trying to do this with as much kindness and compassion towards yourself as possible. That this isn't about criticism. This isn't about saying, oh my God, I've done a really bad thing. I have to do it better. This is about saying, okay, this is what's going on for me. Maybe it's not really working for me when I express myself in this way. So how can I actually ease that for myself? And then hopefully, you know, that will pass on to the relationships and the situations around me. And is the knowing enough? Is the writing down of the the stuff and the the learning and the awareness, is that enough? I always think back to a friend of mine who is doing a psychology degree and one of the exercises she got was to keep a stress diary. And every Mm -hmm. situation from a row with her husband to a cue for the coffee when she didn't have time, she had to assess it between one and 10, 10 being, as you say, the, the red face emoji with the steam coming out. And she just found that she was hitting 10 for everything. It didn't really matter. And I suppose that gave her the knowledge to arrive to the next coffee queue and go, it's okay, don't go there. You know, is the awareness enough? You see, that's it, you know, Claire. It's kind of almost like the next step will naturally start to progress on, you know, that once we start to really get this amazing insight into ourselves, you know, we start to actually catch up with ourselves then, you know, so that when the next situation that's really, really annoying comes up, because we've been doing this, you know, this little internal project on ourselves, we can say, oh, this is actually what's going on here. Like it won't happen overnight. We're building this skill over some time and kind of really checking in so that we're recognizing the trigger so that then in the moment, we can actually recognize it as it's happening. And then we're making a conscious decision. Okay, because I recognized that it wasn't working for me in the first place, now I recognize the trigger as it's happening. Okay, now I can do something about it. You know, now I want to take action. Now I want to, you know, think about it in a different way, offer myself an alternative, you know, and these sometimes we can, you know, manufacture them for ourselves, like even say, okay, when I feel this trigger coming up, when I notice it, maybe I allow myself to to think of something calming, or maybe I allow myself to remember I'm okay, that I can manage the situation, you know, sometimes it's a sentence or a word, but other times it'll start to happen quite naturally, and we'll instinctively know how to respond that's not jumping into a situation that we we don't know how to control ourselves. 
Yeah. And I mean, it comes down to that control, doesn't it? Like Mm. I said, you lose control, but having that awareness and spending a bit of time on it, I suppose you're taking back some of that control. But how normal is it to have anger or rouse within relationships in your life, be them love, family or, or friendship? I mean, it's it's completely normal you know and like it's not to say that it's not normal if we don't have loads of rows that's not the case but you know rowing is is normal because in relationship whatever relationship like you say that might be whether it be an intimate relationship or family or friend or neighbor it's two different people coming together to share something whatever that might be and these two different people why we might agree on loads and loads of stuff there are certainly things we'll find that we won't agree on and we're going to disagree, you know, and that needs to be OK. I suppose the the anger piece and um, what's really important there is checking in with how that impacts the relationship. You know, how do we actually allow one another to express these anger pieces? You know, because if we are suppressing the anger just within this relationship, then we might start to get a little bit resentful towards each other. We might start to get a little bit passive aggressive. And then, you know, things kind of take on a a different spin when we're around one another. But actually when we're kind of like, oh, this is okay between us to disagree. This is okay between us to kind of um, have a little bit of an argument about something. As long as we're both being respectful of one another and ourselves, you know. And it might seem like a lot of ingredients going into that. But sometimes it's just about being open and honest, isn't it? You know, it's kind of saying, okay, what what you might have done there made me quite angry and this is how I felt about it. Um, and being okay that there's a space within your relationship to say that, you know. And I know this needs to be kind of mutually agreed when there's more than one person involved, but it's kind of building that opportunity. Yeah, and I suppose you have to open your mind to sometimes it's not going to be I'm right or you're right. You know, you just get to make your point and they make theirs. And that's kind of the best you can come up with sometimes and have a greater understanding of where the other one was coming from. But we kind of think that at the end of the equation, there has to be and they both agreed and they all lived happily ever after. That's not that's not normal human relationships. That's just Disney films. That's just Disney. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's it that we can like agree that we both have a feeling on something that's different and that's OK. And and I suppose as well, one of those really, really um, juicy nuggets of relationship, whatever relationship that might be, is that we will find a way to accept one another's differences, you know, and do that and still love one another and enjoy one another, whatever way that might look, you know, if we can. <laughs> it's always a working progress, I think. And it's always something that um, we can keep open, like you said, keep our minds open to this because our attitudes towards things change. You know, our experiences will change day to day. And so we will have a different way of responding in different situations. And that's okay too, that the relationship needs to grow with that. And again, once we can have an open mind on that, it's it's safer then, you know, with us together to experience and express these things. Christine, where can people find you? Um, so if you just type in Christina Redden psychotherapist, uh, you'll find a little pin drop. I'm based in Cork, but I work um, online and face to face in Mallow. Um, so you find my information there, my email address and my uh, phone number. Or you could also find me on Instagram at C-O-R underscore psychotherapy. Christine O'Reardon, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Claire. It was lovely to chat. 
There isn't a family in Ireland that has not been touched by cancer. In fact, approximately 25,000 people are diagnosed with invasive cancer here each year. In the past 20 years, almost 31,000 people have taken part in nearly 800 cancer clinical trials. Sarah McGrath was diagnosed with hormone receptor positive breast cancer in May 2020. After receiving treatment, Sarah was advised she was eligible for participation in a trial focused on studying non-recurrence. And Sarah joins me in studio now. So Sarah, you were at home with a broken ankle when you discovered the lump. I I was in kind of proof that everything happens for a reason, I guess. Um, I broke my ankle, had had surgery on it, and so I had ended up going home to my mammy, uh, like all good Irish girls, because she lives in a in a bungalow and I uh, live on the third fl- on a third floor apartment. And it was while I was there and uh, towards the end of my recovery, I found a lump and went to the GP pretty much the next day and was referred on then to the symptomatic breast clinic in University Hospital Limerick, which is the nearest place to I live in. I'm from Clare Castle in County Clare originally. Um, so yeah, and it went from there. So kind of had my triple assessment and then got my results kind of a week or so later. And it really fascinates me how a lot of people say that, that they, they found it, like they were they were drawn there. Were you somebody that was very breast aware? Was that something you'd be regularly doing or was this something you just discovered? A little bit of both. I would say that I have gone previously to have lumps checked out, um, but this one, I actually think it was partly actually because of the broken ankle. There's a lot of, uh, without going into too much detail, there's a lot of awkwardness in attempting to shower when you have a broken ankle and a cast that you can't get wet. And I actually think I probably found it a little more quickly than I would have otherwise because of that. Okay, I can imagine you were contorting in all kinds (laughs) of places, but find it you did. And because you'd had others checked out, were you buoyed up that this was going to be the same again? To be honest, I was. Um, I mean, I you're always, of course, a little bit worried when you're going in to be assessed. And it was my first time going for, for the triple assessment. But I was pretty sure I was like, oh, yeah, this will just be a lymph node or a swollen gland or something. It'll be fine. And actually, one thing I was quite grateful for is the day of the triple assessment. And I should say to anyone who's listening, who's kind of maybe nervous about going to get something checked out. It's such a brilliant system. And you see the consultant at the beginning and the end of your appointment. Um, And actually at the end of my appointment, um, the doctor said to me, look, we won't know for sure until the biopsy comes back. But from the imaging, it looks like it probably is something. And then, which was incredibly reassuring, she said, and if it is, we will deal with it because that is what we do here. Okay, so what about getting the diagnosis itself, though? That sounds all well and good. But when you hear those words, can you remember that day vividly? I do remember it. um, And I think I was a little bit prepared because of that conversation. But of course, you're still thinking maybe it's just all a mistake and it looks a bit funny on the screen and the biopsy will come back fine. And so even though I was somewhat prepared for it, it's still very shocking, I think, when you hear it. And particularly, you know, in my case, I had gone from sort of two weeks previously, there was nothing wrong with me other than my dodgy broken ankle. Um, I didn't have any symptoms of any kind other than the lump. So it was kind of quite shocking to me to realise, you know, that I did have cancer. 
And was it a double whammy in a way that you were still on crutches and still going through all of that? A little bit in a really strange way. Um, I had never spent a night in hospital until I broke my ankle. And so in a really odd way, certain things that I think are quite frightening the first time they happen, I at least had done before. I had had a general anaesthetic a few months earlier. I knew I could take those well. I kind of knew the drill in surgery. So I don't think, in an odd way, I think it actually equipped me a bit more. Now, I was lucky in that by the time I was diagnosed, I was pretty much kind of out of the cast and kind of into the the physio kind of end of of recovery. So this was through the pandemic then, your treatment. So that must have made a difficult time even more so. It was. I mean, I suppose what was good was that everything went on the same time frame that it would have in non-pandemic times, um, which, you know, I think was, you know, you're never quite sure if that's going to be the case. And it was early on in the pandemic. It was May 2020 when I was diagnosed. So I don't obviously have the alternative experience, but one of the things that was strange is obviously you're going to everything by yourself. So the only appointment where I had someone with me was the appointment for uh, getting my results. You're allowed to have somebody with you for that. But we'll say I went to all my preoperative scans on my own, uh, went to all my chemo appointments on my own, went all to, to all of my radiotherapy appointments on my own. Yeah, tough. How did you manage that? What did you do to, to help yourself through that? You know, it, it's a strange thing to say, Claire, but in some ways... It's, of course, very difficult and it's a very difficult experience. But I actually think it's nearly harder for the people who are closest to you because they're going through this as well. And to the extent that anyone has agency in the process, even if that agency is just rocking up to have a needle stuck in your arm or a laser pointed at you, it's the patient. And in in, in some ways, I actually found it easier to go to some of those things by myself because then you could kind of go into your own head, you'd have terrible sitcoms downloaded on your phone um, and kind of books to read and things like that for for the waiting around. And you could, in a little way, kind of divorce yourself from the upset of it all, which is in some ways a bit more present when the people who love you are around you because I think they find it quite hard to, you know, to sort of keep the, keep the bright side out. Yeah, and I suppose you're conscious of them and you're conscious of them waiting around and, you know, you're running out of conversation or whatever it is, how lovely it is to have some company. But also, as you say, sometimes just going it alone and then being picked up by somebody and being given a nice dinner or something. Exactly. There's there's something nice in that too. Yeah, exactly. So as I say, I don't have the alternative experience. I mean, I have some friends who've been through treatment and they had, you know, people on a rota coming in to sit with them during chemo. But I think I was pretty... Pretty happy, as I say, with my back-to-back episodes of Superstore and and other such light entertainments. What were you told then about your treatment plan and and your prognosis? So I was very lucky and I I really appreciate that cancer journeys are very different and that this isn't everyone's situation. But for me, it was reasonably early when it was discovered, um, although it had spread uh, uh, very slightly into my lymph nodes. So I did have to have two surgeries. Um, to have more lymph nodes removed once that was discovered. But from the very beginning, it was 
reasonably clear that this was treatment with curative intent uh, was was basically what I was looking at. And even when I moved from surgery across to medical oncology, um, they said to me there, you know, that basically surgery had removed the cancer, but now the chemotherapy was a, about trying to make sure that it didn't recur. Um, and because I was relatively young, um, there tends to be a more aggressive approach to, to non-recurrence. The words, we'll throw the kitchen sink at it, were, were used. Oh, those medical, <laughs> those medical words, those medical terms. <laughs> Absolutely. And at what point was a clinical trial discussed with you or suggested to you? So in my case, I had finished chemotherapy and was kind of at my sign-off appointment for medical oncology before I started uh, my radiotherapy. And at that appointment, the doctor advised me that as a as a class of patient, so to speak, in terms of the type of cancer I had and the treatment I had had, that I was eligible for a clinical trial called the Ad Aspirin clinical trial. And that if I would be interested to hear more about it, the clinical trials nurse could kind of come and talk to me and give me some information about it. So I basically decided to do that as in to hear from, you know, to hear from her and kind of took some leaflets. And then I took all of that home and had a bit of a think about it um, and then gave them a call back to say that I would like to participate. But in the case of my trial, it didn't start until after all of my treatment was over um, because the purpose of uh, of the, the trial is it's looking into whether it's and exactly what it says on the tin situation. It's ad aspirin. So it's uh, basically whether taking daily aspirin in patients like me who have had treatment with curative intent for cancer as to whether daily aspirin helps prevent or delay any recurrence of the cancer. Okay, and at that stage you were at the end of your treatment you were cancer free so this is to stop it coming back. Yes. Did or to see does it have an impact? Exactly. And did you have any reservations? We're going to be joined in a moment by Professor Seamus O'Reilly and I'm going to ask him to talk through some of the clinical trial myths but one of them is that you're going to be this guinea pig. You're going to be somebody that's going to be used for medical advances, which are really positive, but nobody wants to be that that guinea pig. And that's not true. These are studies at very late stages before they'd even consider it being a, a trial. And that's what Seamus will explain. But did you have that guinea pig mentality at all? So I suppose in one sense, I was a little bit different because I was at the end of my treatment. And so... And also the nature of my trial, which I should say is uh, is supported by the Irish Cancer Society, which is great, um, is is that I mean you're taking an aspirin, so you're fairly confident that it's not going to do you any any great damage. That said, I think you do still think about even at the end of treatment, you're kind of going, do I really now want to subject myself to? more taking of things and more sort of poking and prodding after a year of yeah, continually and phone calls being and check-ins poked and, and prodded and asked questions. And for me, I think there was two things. The first thing is, um, and I think sometimes people don't think about this, one of the big benefits of a clinical trial is that you have really regular checkups to do with the trial. Um, so for me, being post-treatment, I'm seen every three months um, in University Hospital Limerick, there's a physical exam, there's bloods every second time. Um, and there's also a second set of eyes on all my regular post-cancer scans, whether that's mammograms or, or, or other things. And I actually find that just really reassuring 
because I suppose because in my case, the cancer sort of crept up on me. Um, I think I kind of find it reassuring the idea that someone else is keeping an extra eye on me um, more than the, you know, additional to the normal kind of post-treatment surveillance. The other thing I would say is, especially during chemotherapy, become really aware of how much things have advanced and changed even in five years in terms of what they can do for side effects, how they approach things. And there was a part of me that kind of thought, well, all of that's only possible um, because there have been trials to, you know, to 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 figure this out and to to make these things better and make these advances. And in my case, it seemed like a really small thing to do <laughs> um, to sort of to sort of pay it forward a bit because again and I know different people have different stories but my experience was so incredibly positive like all through my treatment I felt so well taken care of so kind of I did feel the service like properly was kind of wrapped around you as you moved through the different phases of treatment and so I kind of thought well if I can do something um, I'm I'm happy to do it um, and as I'm sure uh, Dr. O'Reilly will talk to you about, you know, absolutely some of those other ideas that people have about you're being tested on or you're a guinea pig, they are genuinely myths. You're the, you're always getting the existing standard of care. The only question is, um, is the other thing they're trialling potentially going to be better? And are you privy to any of the results or do you just give your evidence and that's it. So my trial is ongoing. It's uh, It lasts for five years um, and I'm only kind of just, I'll be just starting into the second year of it now. So I think they do, at the end, I think they'll share the results, but it is a double blind trial. So neither I nor my doctors know whether I'm on aspirin or whether I'm on placebo. I'm joined now on the line by Professor Seamus O'Reilly, consultant medical oncologist and vice clinical lead with Cancer Trials Ireland. Seamus, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. And I just want to say thank you to uh, Sarah for uh, for speaking like this. Uh, a patient's story always makes the thing more real and shows uh, the importance of cancer uh, research as part of cancer care. So I'm very grateful for her uh, uh, talking today. I'm also conscious that it's a big deal to speak publicly about about your illness. So we're very, at Cancer Trials Ireland, we're very grateful for her, uh, for her advocacy. Absolutely. As you say, the, the patient story really does hit home with people. So can you explain what clinical trials are? So if you're diagnosed with cancer today and you come into hospital, you're, what we do and how we, how we treat and, and our growing cure rates all relate to clinical trials. And, and the reason for that is that new treatments are coming along. We compare the new treatment with the old treatment or maybe have, have Everybody gets the standard treatment and, and uh, half of the patients get a, a new treatment in addition to it. And in a trial, we see whether that strategy helps or not. There are multiple layers of, of patient security in the trial from uh, government regulatory bodies like the HPRA and, and the National Research Ethics Committee to risk management in the hospital to external review panels who are monitoring the trial, what we call an independent data safety and monitoring committee. And uh, they will stop the trial early if it's not working or stop the trial early if the results are good and are concerned that the treatment should get out into the public domain a lot quicker. Um, so in the ad aspirin trial, for instance, everybody gets standard of care breast cancer treatment and half the patients get uh, uh, aspirin because we feel that aspirin may have a, a, a cancer protectant effect 
and it may also reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. And this is part of a large international uh, study coordinated through the through the Medical Research Council in the in the United Kingdom. And it's a global study, so patients are in Ireland are contributing to a global effort to see if adding a new treatment will improve matters. Uh, the trial is really important because aspirin is a drug that's widely available. Many of our newer cancer therapies are very expensive, so and are, are irrelevant in in large parts of the world where it's where they they may be wonderful, but they're unaffordable. Whereas aspirin is widely available, and, and so the results of this this study will be globally applicable. And that's really important. I think it'll be helpful if we talk through the top five clinical trial myths um, to give people a greater understanding because it really opened my eyes when reading through them. And the first one is the placebo myth. So there's going to be no clinical trial that you'll take part in where you'll be given a, a sugar pill. Yes, yeah, so the, the, in the trial it would be unethical to treat people without standard of care treatment. So that standard of care treatment, say for breast cancer, is for instance would involve chemotherapy or hormone treatment. And so because if you were to go on a trial where your outcome would be worse than expected, that would be, you couldn't do the trial, the trial would be unethical to conduct for multiple reasons. Um, so a placebo is used in, in a study where we're comparing standard of care versus standard of care and a new treatment. So because it's impossible to know whether the, you know, what side effects might be due to the new treatment or what side effects might be due to just a chance effect. We use a placebo controlled, that would involve a placebo controlled trial. But everybody gets some form of treatment. I think it's, that's really important to, to note. I mean, you can't uh, do a, a study where you'd see how people did with, with doing nothing. Um, that's been done before and is used in, in medical education to highlight the importance of ethical control of clinical trials. People will also worry that they'll be locked in. This is another myth. You can leave the trial at any time. That's correct. So you have autonomy at all times. Um, if, if, if it isn't agreeing with you, if it doesn't suit your life, if you're concerned about staying on the treatment, if, it's too, if the trial is too onerous for you, you have the right to walk away. Um, that's a, a, a guarantee. Uh, patient autonomy is very important to preserve, and we're conscious that it's it's a that going on a trial is a trust issue, and uh, and it's really important for people to feel that their views are going to be respected. People will also think that there might be money involved; that it'll only be with the the very expensive oncologist that you'll get access to to this, and and that's also not true. That's exactly. So the Health Research Board has funded cancer clinical trials units throughout the country. There involved in all of our hospitals, both privately and publicly. But the largest ones are in the public hospitals. The highest accruing uh, cancer clinical trials unit in the country is in Cork University Hospital, which is a HSE public hospital. So access to care is equitable. It has to, it's, a, it's a very important aspect of what we do. Uh, so we're, we have 18 clinical trials units that we're involved in as, in Cancer Trials Ireland, and they are distributed throughout the state. It's very important that uh, people of what we call equity of access, regardless of where they live, to our clinical trial developments. Really important. I'm um, also the guinea pig myth I thought was interesting um, that there is no new cancer medicines tested for the first time on people or what are known as first in human trials. These are cancer trials that are at a very advanced stage in terms of therapy development. You're, you're not a, a guinea pig at risk of multiple side effects because it's never really been looked at properly before. 
Correct. The majority of the trials that we do at the moment are what we call phase three trials. So phase three trials is where they've been assessed in maybe hundreds of patients before the trial is done. And what we're doing is we're comparing this new drug with the standard with the standard drug. So there's a significant track record with the drug already, but before we actually get to a stage of, of having it in clinical practice, um, there has to be, uh, for a company to embark on a trial like this, is a huge undertaking. And so there, or an organization is a huge undertaking. So there has to be a, a, a lot of data and safety data and benefit data before they would even consider it. So that uh, that guinea pig myth really, um, I think it, it, it relates to patients, probably everybody's concerns that, you know, you know, what benefit is going to be from me, uh, you know, there uh, there isn't a robust database for me to go on this trial, but in order to get to a clinical trial being open like this, there is really an enormous wealth of data available to, to allow the trial to be conducted. And people might wonder who will be keeping an eye on them while they're on this trial. And the truth is that they will actually almost have more support because of it. And there's a lot of research to say that this has been been very helpful to people. Yeah, so when you're on a clinical trial, the clinical trial team looks after you. There's a, an enormous level of scrutiny of laboratory data, of radiology data, of, of symptomatology uh, data, of your symptoms during the trial. So there's a, it's like an extra uh, layer of supervision. They liaise with the, the team that referred you to the trial in the, in the first place. But it's an enormously enhanced level of clinical supervision. Uh, because every data point for, that's been taken for you also goes into a, a database to judge the benefit of the treatment. And that's done in real time to make sure that it's safe to continue the trial and it's safe to continue on the, you on the treatment. Our society has opened up now because of COVID-19 vaccination. And we've gone from where nobody knew about COVID uh, 20, you know, two and a half years ago to everybody knows about COVID. And vaccination has transformed things and those vaccines have come about as a result of, of clinical trials in patients and in communities and it's been transformative. So our society is opening up today, you know, enormously because of, of clinical trials in, you know, and the importance of cancer discovery and cancer research. So it's a wonderful example of, of the benefits of, of, of research and of, uh, of discovery and how it can transform things. I, I don't know what we would do without vaccination uh, and how quickly we've been able to get people vaccinated. I, I, I shudder to think of, of the continued lockdowns, et cetera, that we're seeing in other societies where vaccination isn't developing, yeah. isn't, aren't developed or aren't effective. So I think, I think that's very reassuring for patients and for families and for people going on clinical trials that you know the, the COVID-19 vaccination strategies have been an enormous positive example of of the effectiveness of, of clinical trials and the clinical trial network and the safety of vaccinations in communities. Well, Professor Seamus O'Reilly, consultant medical oncologist and vice clinical lead of Cancer Trials Ireland, thank you very much for talking thank to me Thank you very much for having me on this morning. Thank you again. So Sarah, can I ask how life is for you now? I know you have a busy life with your partner and you work for the Department of Foreign Affairs. You're going to be moving countries soon. Have you returned to some semblance of normality or are you still trying to process the the whole experience? I think a little bit of both. I mean, one of the kind of strange advantages of being uh, ill and having treatment during the pandemic is that I finished treatment and sort of re-emerged into the world at around the same time the world was opening up. So um, on some things, for example, 
kind of being five days a week in the office was a gradual return. I was able to work from home for a little while, which was which was very helpful as my, you know, as I kind of built up my energy levels. I would say today I'm not 100 percent, I would say, back energy wise that that can take a little while. But I would say I'm kind of 90 percent of the 90 percent of the way there, which is great. Um, and I think part of that as well was during treatment. And I'll be honest with you, Claire, it wasn't my instinct at all. My, I think like a lot of women, my instinct is to be doing all the time. And during treatment, I got some really good advice from friends of mine who'd been through it and from the breast care nurses to kind of go, for the next while, you have one job and focus on that, take it one step at a time and come out the other side of it and everything else will will still be there. And it was really good advice. And I actually think I was in much better shape at the end of treatment than I would have been if I'd maybe given in to probably what my instincts were to still be trying to do a bit of this and a bit of that. So as I say, I think pretty much kind of 90% there uh, other than uh, other than my chemo curls, uh, which, uh, which still haven't grown out, but uh, that'll come in time too. I wish you the very best in your next chapter and all that is to come. Sarah McGrath, thank you very much for talking to me today. And thank you again to Professor Seamus O'Reilly to access the Just Ask information booklet or for a full list of clinical trials taking place in Ireland, you can go to cancertrials.ie or alternatively, you can telephone the Irish Cancer Society Cancer Nurse Line. It's a free phone number. It's 1800 200 700. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Jojo Cordoza who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.